Welcome to More Like the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. And I'm your host, Benkidia Garner. Thank you all for joining us today. So before we get into today's content, I do want to say if you enjoy listening to More Like the Reentry Podcast, make sure you subscribe on whatever platform that you are listening to. Follow us on Instagram at More Like the Reentry Podcast and share one of our episodes with your friends. Um, we thank you all for listening to us and we are excited for the content that we are going to be having today. But make sure you follow those three steps if you enjoy listening to us. Um, so for today's episode, we're going to be getting into reentry challenges for men and women. I know this is something we've briefly kind of been discussing over the weeks, but um just want to send a reminder to people and have a maybe a more thorough conversation about what these reentry needs are for men and women as they are released from incarceration or and what they're saying from their perspective are is important um, for their reentry process. So for today, I have two guests that will be discussing with us. Um, like I said, the reentry needs of men and women, um, ways for advocating for change uh, for people as they transition back into the community, and um, just kind of sharing some recommendations and for ways that we can show up for these individuals. So two guests, this is something we've never done before, but this is going to be very exciting, and I'm excited to hear what we're going to talk about today. So um, I do want to introduce our two guests really quick. Of So our first guest is Dr. Robert Dodmeyer, who is a professor in the Sunny Brookport Counselor Education Department. Um, he has worked as a mental health counselor, supervisor, and director, um, and is a licensed mental health counselor and certified rehabilitation counselor. He has served as the former co-president of the New York Association of Counselor Education and Supervision and has advocated for the recognition of diagnosis and the scope of practice for mental health counselors. So, Dr. Dobmeyer, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation, Ben. Yes. And then our other guest is Dr. Raphael Outland. He is a father, educator, researcher, and critical scholar. He holds a doctorate degree in counselor education and supervision from the University of Rochester, a master's in education from Boston University, and a bachelor's in psychology from Clark Atlanta University. His research focuses on the influence of historical and institutional violence on the lives of oppressed people, primarily poor Black and brown youth. So, Dr. Outland, uh, once again, I want to also thank you for coming on to talk to us about um, the needs of women and men after they are released. Yeah, thank you for having me, Vankavia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as we always start with, before we get into our content, we always are interested in how our guests um, got involved in this research, this work, or their practice at all. Um, so, Whoever wants to start, do either of you care to share with us a little bit about how you became interested in working with uh, a justice-involved population or people that are coming out of prison or jail? You can get us started, Raphael. Okay, yeah, I'll get us started. Um, well, I think what drew me close to this work is, um, as you heard in my uh, bio, um. I was striving as a doctoral student where you are. Um, and then also once I graduated uh, to really try to understand 
the lived experiences of uh, struggling black, brown, uh, poor youth. And um, it had a lot to do with my own upbringing and the environment I grew up. Uh, Scoppy Road, uh, Yorktown in um, College Park, Georgia. And so, you know, I was able to see a lot of things growing up in that space. And so, yeah, just wanted to understand what, what are the meaning and understanding for, you know, a lot of the urban teens. And so what I realized was that one of the things that recycles uh, the conditions, the struggles, the hardships of poor people uh, in marginalized spaces is the prison industrial complex. And um, how this tool is kind of arranged to recycle is that not only are most people thrown in a cage, you know, hide the key, you know, that's the practice. But also we live under one of the only systems that when people get out, they're further socially, institutionally, uh, economically, politically penalized. And so not only is whatever led them to be thrown in a cage of crime, but our society uh, is kind of a range where people's suffering continues. And um, as we know, thinking about people like Michelle Alexander, who kind of wrote it clearly, uh, folks with that felony, they enter, enter that underclass. So I start better seeing that when I think about what were some of the struggles of urban youth that I was seeing. And of course, their families were immediate contributors and of changing or kind of contributing to the hardship. So I think in that regard, it led me to want to learn more about uh, what is the prison industrial complex? Um, how does it play primarily poor people, all poor people's lives in the US? And then I think more importantly about this talk, what do people need once they get out of the cages and um, return back to our society in order to function, you know, at a a humane level. So I'll stop there. Yeah, I will definitely say that's very relatable. Um, like I was, I've told y'all briefly before this of coming from a community where you often see this, um, a lot of crime, you see a lot of teens involved in violence, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's kind of what drew me to it as well is when, once I got older, I started really understanding, um, kind of, I started really understanding what was going on and kind of how people were cycling through and what they were cycling through and what was actually happening. And, and that's when I realized that also that connection of incarceration was going through families. It was going through communities. And, you know, as a kid, I, I don't know that, but getting older, I definitely have learned that. Racism. And it has troubled me, you know, the, the disconnection between people is, is, uh, just wears on my soul, quite honestly. It's just very disturbing to see the lack of awareness of each other, lack of respect for each other. Um, and and that that perspective just continued as I went through college and and graduate work. And eventually I became uh, <clears throat> the director of community services. It's the mental health and the substance abuse services and all. Uh, Cattaraugus County in uh, New York State. It's it's a rural county, 
And in, in my role, I would often go to the jail and meet with inmates and evaluate them, um, make recommendations for them. And I just became more sensitized to the oppression, many times the injustice that goes on for inmates. And I, I made a commitment to myself, this was back in the early 2000s, that when I went into academia, I was gonna really uh, invest myself in this area of incarceration and oppression of, of uh, groups and the injustice, just you know, the, the deep egregious injustice that uh, I went to another uh, prison setting and first time I walked into one as, as a visitor, as a professional, and I saw all people of color, all men of color, um, virtually no white men there, black men, brown men. And I thought, wow, this, this is really something that what goes on in our society that um, black men and brown men are so vulnerable to incarceration and, and everything behind that. And again, just very deeply disturbing to me. I felt a responsibility to uh, know more about it, to speak out about it. And then when I, got, when I got into academia, indeed, we began to do some research in this area. Uh, Raphael and I connected about six or seven years ago, having conversations. We did a study uh, together with uh, some of our colleagues and, and students. And so, yeah, I mean, as a white man, I just have had the privilege of, of teaching, working with people of color, um, learning from them, their humanity, and have come to believe that I need all people. I cannot exclude people from my life. I need to know people different than me to become my full self. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is the suffering and the injustice that I see going on. And I'm trying to make in my own small way a difference. And, you know, that's the great thing. It's like, I know, at least for me, I appreciate the commitment from the both of you and the work that y'all have uh, done over years to to show your commitment um, and to bring in, you know, your own personal perspective, Dr. Outland, and you as well, Dr. Damir, of just contributing to the field and showing us new people that are coming in ways of which we can uh, advocate and what we need to be paying attention to. So I am really thankful and grateful for that. And thank y'all for sharing y'all stories on here. Absolutely. Well, I want to, I want to um, move us towards our conversation. Cause I know we're going to be talking about reentry and I know that there's so much that we could talk about here. We could probably talk about every challenge, but we just don't have time to do that. Um, but I do want to, put like a disclaimer out there for our audience members when we get into our conversation. So yes, we are going to be talking about the needs of individuals as they are transitioning um, and what they perceive as their needs. But we also want to make it clear that uh, we're not saying that these needs are representative of everybody who may be re-entering um, or that has been incarcerated. This is just based on information that has been gathered um, through qualitative work and um, 
So it, it's not generalizable to everybody. Everybody's experience is not going to be the same, but this is just information that we've picked up on as we've, well, as they have um, interviewed and worked with individuals. So just wanted to put that out there first. Um, is there anything else y'all would like to add to that? Okay. No. Well, let's, I guess let's get into it. So um, reentry and we're going to be talking about men and women. And um, I don't know how you all wanted to start this off, but I was thinking that we could just start with talking about what type of, because I, I think the audience has a basis of like what reentry is. Um, just talking about when we talk about men and women, uh, what type of I guess when we're talking about demographics, what have we noticed in this population of incarcerated individuals as it pertains to either men or women and those cycling out of prison? Mm -hmm. um, well, one th where I'll start to, I just wanna make sure that we ground ourselves in um, the continuation of chateau slavery and how the prison industrial complex becomes a reflection of that institution. And one part of that institution we don't talk much about is the economic politics of it all. So in other words, what kind of money uh, flows from the prison industrial complex and how might that be connected to uh, the elite capitalist's idea of maintaining chateau slavery. So I think about when I was in my doctoral program um, with the direct support of uh, Dr. Signithia Fordham, who's at the University of uh, we explored just what were some of the major contributors, contributing factors of the prison industrial complex. And just in brief, a couple of things we saw were the shifting laws, so elite had all governing power to say what's a crime and what isn't, you know? So now anything can become criminal and people can be thrown in prison. Um, but then also as we kind of paid close attention was why was the war on drugs a factor to create this huge economic boom within the prison industrial complex? So we do talk about all the people being ushered into prisons, and but we don't really explore all the different government and private company contracts that came out of the prison industrial complex, which in turn created mass profits. And we see it now on, on the stock market uh, for the prison industrial complex. So I think from that beginning, I sort of better was trying to make sense of how is people criminalization being monetized? So in other words, who continues to make money off a society's ideas of crime and punishment? And as we fast forward now, we know that there's colleges, big businesses, educational systems, all reaping the benefits of uh, people who are incarcerated, it's free labor. And so from that vein, now we can probably think about like how are people being impacted by this sort of being paid pennies and working for free and all the continued violence that surrounds being in the cage 
to now, what do people need when they get out? And I think oftentimes it is more than a job. It is more than some clothes, right? It is more than a bus card. So I just wanted to make sure we kind of start there just to kind of have a grounding, you know, of what is the prison industrial complex and asking ourselves a question, who's benefiting from it all? And then in turn, how are people confined being impacted and what might they need once released? Yeah, I think that's a um, a great area. And like you said, you referenced um, Michelle Alexander earlier. She does a really great job of, you know, discussing that in her book. Um, and that's something I know that's something that I'm finishing up right now and trying to learn more about. But I do appreciate you for bringing that up. Um, Dr. Damir, is there anything you would like to add to that piece of the conversation? Yes. Um, just to expand on uh, Dr. Outland's thoughts there, the systemic nature of this, um, it's rooted in history. You know, it's, it's rooted in slavery, as Raphael is referring to. Power, uh, money. I want to add another piece. I think there's fear behind this. Uh, you know, we, we talk about white supremacy, and I, th I think a major principle of white supremacy is fear and control. Let's control people who we don't understand. Um, so I think that's that's a, an important lens to look through, that there are systemic factors that, that create the uh, prison system and how it's currently used. You know, as a white person, obviously I interact with a lot of white family, a lot of white uh, friends, um, and I see their misperceptions. I see uh, the brainwashing, you know, of, um, you know, from early childhood of, of not really recognizing the humanity of other people and sort of looking through, you know, the lens of, uh, you know, the white education system that critical race theory tries to uh, challenge and say there's more to reality than that. That's not the truth. It's, at least it's not the full truth. We need to get other voices. So yeah, absolutely. This is a systemic problem. It's not just incarceration. It's uh, injustices with housing. It's injustices with education. Uh, it runs throughout our culture. Definitely agreed. Um, there's been so much work that I have looked at um, and that I'm learning about as I'm you know, learn more about reentry and all the different layers that have just like compared um, kind of what you were talking about, Dr. Outland, and what you're talking about, new talk, what you're talking about now, um, Dr. Dimir, is that basically incarceration is just another form of slavery um, in a total, just, you know, just branded it in a different way now. Um, and that's what we have been monetizing, allocating our money to, um, rather than some of the other things that would be supportive of these individuals um, or just supportive of the community in general. So I guess one thing um, I know you, you gave us that like um, understanding before, like things for the us to think about. And I think that's a good point for our audience to think about is who is benefiting from these. And then we can kind of move on to what are the needs um, 
of these individuals. So do is that is that appropriate for us to move to now of talking about those needs? Yeah, I'm completely I'm okay with that. Okay. Absolutely. Um so when we think about and I, I know we're talking about men and women here, um, and their needs can look so different, um, but they also have some shared needs as well as most people who come out of um, incarceration. Um, so kind of what, you know, in y'all's work, in y'all's experience, um, what have y'all been informed of as like general needs for just both men and women? You can get this one started, Bob, if you like, and I can jump in. Yeah. Um, I would say a major area is family. That, uh, you know, we talk to men, uh, some women who've literally been cut off from family. Family washes their hands, doesn't want any more contact. Um, some of those people are, are parents, you know, moms and dads and having difficulty connecting with their children, staying in the lives of their children. Not for everyone, but many of them are facing those types of family challenges. Even when family does support them, there may be lack of resources. So family may have difficulty with transportation, getting to the prison or the jail to visit. When family does visit, they're off, they often run into some of the same dynamics of rejection and disrespect. Uh, it gets, in other words, it gets projected from the inmate onto the family. We we heard quite a bit about that. And I think a whole other area, um, and we heard this loud and clear from every woman and man that we spoke with, is that long before the day of release. It has to start um, at least on the day that they are first incarcerated. You know, I think we know in terms of a broader perspective prevention, it needs to start long before that so that people are not incarcerated to begin with. But let's just let's accept the fact that people are incarcerated and reentry planning really has to start right away at the point of arrest and and uh, going to the court and then first day in, in jail, first day in prison, because it's a very long term process of of uh, psychological needs, physical needs, social needs. Uh, so we heard that loud and clearly. And then more concretely, uh, and I think that Raphael and, and you, Van Kibbe, have also alluded to this already, that just practical things of, you know, I need a roof over my head. I need a job. I need money. I need good health care. All of those things are seriously threatened. They're threatened while they're incarcerated, and when they come out in the community, they might be threatened even more. Where are they going to find a, a landlord who is not prejudiced and who is open to uh, the fact of, of their having been incar incarcerated? Are they going to be able to find an employer who will recognize their talents and their skills and not be frightened and put off by their having been incarcerated? Um, Healthcare. I mean, we heard some very uh, sad stories about, um, you know, women who are being discouraged from having children because of stereotypes about genes, uh, just really 
disrespectful and based on ignorance, really. Um, difficulty coming back into the community. Um, again, lack of resources, maybe not having skills, knowledge, resources to strike out someplace new in terms of geographical residence. You know, we, we heard that quite a bit that they'd like to start fresh in a new neighborhood, maybe new community and having difficulty doing that because of um, lack of transportation, lack of dollars. So those are just some of the basic things. The psychological things are more hidden. So, you know, it, it's, it's easier for us to recognize, can't find a job, can't get a roof over my head, don't have bucks. Uh, but the psychological um, oppression is even more difficult and it's, it's more buried, you know, of how the person is dealing with their own identity. Who am I? Uh, what do I want to do in my life? What are my skills? What are my talents? How do I fulfill my family responsibilities? Those psychological things often really weigh on people. Yeah, I'll add on to that, Bob. Um, I don't want us to ever be confused about who created, who creates the ideas of crime and punishment, um, as well as who creates the sort of ideas of a prison and what they have to offer people. And what we've understood at this point <clears throat> is that being confined, having to live in a cage by in its own right is a form of torture. You know, this isn't kind of some uh, rehabilitative process. You put somebody in a cage and they're, no, this is a very small percentage of people who come out of that cage rehabilitated versus the large percentage of people who are impacted simply by living in the cage. Not only is the cage um, its own sense of what Mumiambu Jamal would call a state of hell and damnation, but even outside of the cages, uh, the conditions again, that people are confined to inside are impacting as Bob, you highlighted their psychological, emotional, their physical uh, functioning. And so I think two things I wanna be sure to point out. One, jails and prisons have absolutely no concern about how families, communities are impacted when their loved one is snatched out of the mist. So in other words, some women, men, even young people may be the primary breadwinner of a family right? They may be the person who takes the kids to the bus stop and pick them up from school every day. They might be those individuals, but I want to be clear, the jail and prisons have no concern about that. They don't care how those children are impacted, how the community is impacted. So in turn, there's a much deeper one impact. And then I think overall need that, that we're, we're, we're having to grapple with while someone is confined. So while they're immediately snatched out of whatever contributing capacity they might have been a part of, 
But now once they get out, how have, how have they been impacted by just ex being inside? And then secondly, based on that impact, now what are some of the needs that they need? And I think one population, Bob, you and I had some discourse about this recently, that we're not thinking and looking too closely at is our elder and our infirmed incarcerated population. Our elder population, very specifically, they, these are the people who are in wheelchairs, right? Huge population of elders moving around in wheelchairs in jails or prisons. These are the folks who can't get the medical support they need. Well, why? Because it's just not designed to do that. And more importantly, this is the population who is sitting stagnant from that huge population prison boom of the 80s and 90s. So all the mathematicians and stats folks, if we say there was this huge boom of people going to prison, lifers, et cetera, where are those folks now? And I think now we look inside of jails and prisons, indeed, we see them moving around in wheelchairs and on walkers. And so I just, I really think one, we gotta be honest about who are the elders that are confined right now and how do we perceive them after existing in a prison and jail for so long? And then, and then I guess going back to what we're talking about, what are some of their elderly needs? And as I think you you uh, spoke about Vancouver earlier, this looks completely different from a healthy male in their 30s or 40s getting out, and even a healthy female in their 20s or 30s getting out. So what are some of the needs of an elder who have spent 20, 30 years confined and they finally decided to release that individual back into this society. And I think it, and, and for us, this is where I think I were my final thought, rather than us just shooting out ideas, right? I think we really have to grapple with what this reality looks like with the increased technology, the scant employment, the still like, uh, wearing the felony badge you know you can't find it any support and this and then on top of all that we're dealing with the elder you know who may even have challenges getting around so yeah so thank you thank you for that question no you're welcome and um you know i hear from just the both of you of just like obviously the very general challenges that we we hear about uh some people probably know about i know just going back to what uh, Dr. Damai was saying, a family, family is extremely disrupted. Um, and like you're saying, Dr. Allen, some of these people may have been taken from, they could be the breadwinners, like you said, they could be the primary caregiver of some sort, and now their family has just been disrupted. Um, but what I'm also hearing is, um, you know, preparation. I heard that at the very beginning too. Uh, and that's something like as I continue my education that I really want to lean into is because people are not prepared when they come out or they get 30 days before, three months before. But like you said, it really starts at the time of arrest. And then that's when you start to have to planning forward. But I do think that there's some truth in that we have to accept the reality of what it is that we are dealing with, that we have these people that 
are they are wearing this badge, a big F or scarlet letter or something. Um, and these are the concerns that comes with them depending on if they're an older person, if they're a younger person and where we are in society as well. It is so difficult. Um, I know people now, it's so difficult for them to come out and they already can't get a job because of the felony conviction, but then nobody's hiring anyways, um, or nobody, or there's not employment available or the employers are being super picky because they don't have the qualifications, even for just a re a person who doesn't have a conviction. Um, and so we 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 do have to pay attention to this is really what's happening and this is just exactly what it is. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we'll be able to make progress and move forward and change things. Mm -hmm. I'd like to uh, speak about another population for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, and then like you said, Ben Kibia, we we could talk for a very long time about different populations and their needs. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure uh, to address uh, what we heard from women who are incarcerated. Oh, yes. Excuse me, um, I have to step away one second, but continue. Give me one second. Um, I was inspired. I was moved by the transparency of the women who we interviewed. We worked with about, uh, about 25 women in, in focus groups we ran a number of focus groups in the in the jail setting and the transparency there about their life what their life had been they trusted us i mean we were strangers to them and but they they understood that we were being genuine about please you talk to us you tell us mm -hmm. the answers to the question of what you need and, and they took that uh, and ran with it and, and were very honest with us about their lives, um, mistakes they had made, um, more importantly, their hopes. Um, they made a very clear message to us. A number of them said, we need counselors, psychotherapists, who really get it, who really understand what we've been through in terms of addiction to drugs, alcohol, in many instances, history of, of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Um, and and the, the respect, even given that history, the respect that they have for themselves, the hope that they have, but the realism of what they face in, ter in terms of going in the direction they want to go in, namely to to live the life they want to live, of being uh, good people, good family members, good community members. That's what I heard a whole lot of. I want to do that. I am that. And I need counselors who can understand me and respect me and really help me to, to be healed. Mm -hmm. And I think... Oh, go ahead, Dr. Allen, if you were going to. Oh, no, go ahead. Not kidding. Um, yeah, and I think that, like, you know, one of the greatest things about our conversation here is, like, yeah, we're talking about needs. Um, 
of people that are formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated when they come out, but there's so much uh, missing on the unique needs of certain populations. Like Dr. Outland's talking about elderly people. It's a group that we often forget about that have been, I know that they let a lot of people out on the compassion release because of COVID and those elderly individuals, you know, what was their life like afterwards? Um, and even women, um, our, the system was essentially built, set up for men, designed. It always has been designed for men. And now we have these women and today, even more women going into prison and cycling through the system because of drug problems and all these other different things. And we don't know what they need. We don't know how to support them because these are not the people we have been paying attention to. No, and I'm going to add this to, to what you're saying, Vancivia. Even when we say, like, I think, Bob, I heard you talking about our past research project, uh, having that opportunity to go in and sit down with women, understand how they've been impacted, what they need afterward. Even when we collect all that information, we say, okay, we got the women know what they need, right? They've been in here. Mm -hmm. When we go try to talk to people who say, you know, we have our uh, the women's best interests at heart. Sometimes we're met with like a steel wall. And that steel wall feels sometimes political, political in our sense, as we were saying, hey, narratives of sexual abuse, sexual harassment, these things were coming out. We almost started to feel like we were we could get in trouble just for sharing this. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking, I said, like, wait a second, like we're the researchers who, <laughs> who was just trying to gather information to try to present it back. Hey, this is what it is. You guys can, but they were written when we were saying, Hey, this needed to be investigated, checked out. This is, yeah, we were really treated as if we were the ones who was causing a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important. Um, for researchers, advocates, activists, organizers, all of us to be aware of that. Because if we know like there's a steel wall that exists just by us trying to share information that people incarcerated are giving us, or us trying to uh, transform the space on different levels. And we're starting to feel like, hey, you know, if y'all don't have all the evidence, there's going to be a problem. You know, now we're met with like this sort of question mark of how do we help? Yeah. Okay. People on the other side are saying it's almost a problem by us giving this information. So how do we really advocate and help? And going back to something you said, Bob, earlier about uh, Van Kivia's work, I mean, this becomes a powerful tool and giving those voices, those marginalized, oppressed voices, a platform. Mm -hmm. And it grows. So yeah. I hope you can stick with it and keep it. Look, I hope so too, because that's the goal here, um, is to to give these individuals a voice when, you know, they feel like they don't have one. Um, because that is a lot oftentimes the case is you're met with resistance when you present this information to people of this is what, you know, and it's it's so interesting to me. We always say, 
we need to hear what the incarcerated people are saying. We need to get their perspective of things. But like you said, when we get that perspective and we give the information out, that resistance is there. Um, and it's almost like, like, uh, what am I doing wrong? Like, I thought this is what we needed to do in order to uh, provoke some form of change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, one thing for sure, like I know, uh, we one thing I do want to ask if y'all can share some information on, because we've talked about a couple of different groups of what are some unique needs for, if you have anything, Dr. Allen, on elderly people, um, for women, for men, like just some things that are, um, that should be taken into consideration for certain groups as they are reentering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can um I can get that started. Um over the last several years, I've contributed in different ways, organizing with an elder population who we might identify as our freedom fighters of past time. So individuals who may have been uh former Black Panther Party members, uh former members of the uh, Young Lords, which was more of a Latinx uh, group, and and whether they were connected to the civil rights struggle, Black power movement, they become our freedom fighters because we better understand the war that was waged against them by the government, the counterintelligence program. Mm -hmm. So many of those individuals have been confined for 20, 30, some even 40 years plus. The last decade has probably been a period in which the most of them have been released, right? The last decade. And so when you ask about, so what becomes some of their needs as being people who had to spend years, sometimes even decades in solitary confinement, uh, people who may have experienced torture, um, people's families who may have been harassed over time. Now we're thinking about needs in the sense of how do we reconcile that long history of pain and and hurt and by you know systems that are supposed to support this population and. So when I think about what are some of the needs, the first one is medical. As you think about people aging, and especially in a confined space like a jail or prison, we realize their medical needs are exacerbated. Like they just get worse. The longer and longer people are in there, they just get worse. So the need of a elderly woman who've been in there for 20 years released are gonna be different from just an 80 year old woman who've never been confined. So we gotta be serious about what are those medical needs. Also, because we're in capitalism and everything costs, we have to think about how do we help that elder find some financial balance? And sometimes, no, it may not be this career job where they could just come in and work nine to five. No, they might need something that's more unique where they can make an elderly contribution, you know, and whatever that looks like in that community. 
but they can make a positive, productive contribution based on their experience and their age and where they are physically, mentally, and and uh, and psychologically. And then the last one I'll put out too. Um, it's important for us to define the different forms of support needed for elder. So I know I talked about medical. I know I've talked about, we could put in that employment contribution, but we also have to think about who are the social supports for this elder. You know, elders need that time and space for people just to come and connect, maybe take a walk, maybe to sit down and have a coffee. Um, who become those religious or spiritual supports if that elder is looking for that? Now, maybe not be a Christian, but they might be of the Muslim faith. And how do we begin to help plug in that elder to those different sources of support as part of the reentry plan? So I think maybe we're talking about individualized kind of reentry plans, you know, depending on the elder, the situation experience. But I do think there, there is a real kind of analysis, I think, that we have to go through, starting just from the history of the person confined, you know, up into our current point. So yeah, and that um that makes me think of um when I growing up, my grandfather was an elder that was released from incarceration. And those are very much some of the things that my mom had to deal with. Um, as far as I'm trying to help him transition, he had medical bills that were through the roof. Um, and then just like not getting, I mean, prison not equipped for, you know, hospital care. So some of his needs did go unmet, which further deteriorated his health or, you know, made things worse. And so, you know, and my mom, and like you're talking about the different support systems and, you know, the financial stuff, that was stuff that she had to deal with of, you know, what kind of employment can he have for him to be able to sustain, sustain some form of life, um, and how do we show up as family to be able to support him there? So like that, that's very true. And like, that's something we all need to be paying attention to for sure. Dr. Domai, do you care to share a little bit about women with us and talk to us about that? Yes. Um, the first need that strikes me uh, that many of the women talked about was they wanted to fulfill their, their role as mother. So I think the criminal justice system needs to find ways of letting women mother their children. That means having communication with their children. That means being in physical proximity of their children, being a part of their children's lives. And that probably speaks to other ways of, I don't know what, what verb I want to use, Maybe confinement is not the best way. I mean, maybe, you know, you look at other countries, other cultures, um, people can live in the community and, and be really rehabilitated uh, and not just confined and thrown in a cage. So um, they want to be responsible mothers, parents. Whole second area is um, counselors who are trained in trauma, in um, 
addictions work, trauma, um, self-concept, who am I? So it's not every counselor who's ready. Maybe they can become ready. But mental health counselors who really understand the unique um, grappling with themselves many of the women faced. In other words, um, where am I at in my life now? Where do I want to go from here? Who's going to support me in doing that and being a mother and, and earning income and and finding a community that's that's safe for my family? Um, and, and like Raphael was saying, you know, the whole health thing, health is a major thing for women with um, reproductive years. Um, many of them want to have more children, others want to be planful. And, and so having OBGYNs who, again, understand the oppression that many of these women faced and have lived and who can be respectful of them and and give them the care that they need, the health care, but not just OBGYNs, all forms of, of health care that are needed for older women, middle-aged women, sometimes younger women. And, and then there's there's always the ongoing, uh, the very practical things of of housing, job, and income. Everybody needs that. And those are major risks that many of the women and men face of not having a roof over their head, not having income. So I would, you know, highly encourage employers, landlords, be open, be respectful, understand the humanity of people who've been incarcerated and give people a chance to use their talents. They will help your business. They will bring their talents and their skills and they will help you to be a stronger business if you give them a chance. Yeah, that's the key for sure is opportunity. And, you know, um, just going back to what you said at the beginning, as I've learned about women, um, most of the people that I have worked with have been men. Um, and as I learn more about women, I have learned that when they are released, their first priority, if they have children, is to get those children back. Um and then to kind of foster those other things, housing. But that does become their primary concern of because they need their children. They want to be responsible mothers, like you said. And I'm glad you brought this piece back up because I wanted to comment on it earlier of the the need for, you know, counselors that really understand. Um, I think that's why, like, I could have taken any other route. I could have went social work I could have went criminal justice I could have went in different routes but I chose to go into psychology and counseling because there are yes we have counselors out there and counselors do great you know great work but we don't have a lot of counselors out there that really understand the unique needs of people who are formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated and that can help them through this process of re-entry planning because that's not what we have been taught, at least so far in my education, that's not what I've been taught to do, but that's something that I'm trying to lean into because these are the people that I want to work with. And I have a, a better understanding than some of my other cohort members of what their life may be like. So I think that that's just important as we talk about like psychological stuff that we've mentioned on here, People who have been in solitary confinement, that's a major challenge for them of, you know, just the psychological toll that takes of them 
being in solitary confinement or just incarceration in general, past trauma, current traumas that is happening um, and having counselors or social workers um, that are able to fully understand and help provide you know the appropriate treatment with including all of their unique challenges and things that they may be um experiencing is very important and so there was something that was said actually it was something that I read in the paper that I wanted to ask um because I thought this was pretty interesting and I don't know if it will take our conversation to where we are but this was there was a specific comment in um one of the papers that uh, Dr. Domeyer that you did related to young men Hispanic men and men with mental illness um and one of the statements was that young men come to see stigmatization and criminal lifestyle as inevitable um I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on what that statement means and kind of um I guess, how you came to understand that. Um, I think many of the men were realistic in the sense of knowing how society tends to view incarcerated human beings. In other words, they were being realistic about what they were facing. They were looking for mercy and they were looking for respect and openness, but they knew what was coming was uh, a lot of judgments, a lot of stereotypes, and quite honestly, a lot of ignorance in the sense of people don't know what they don't know. And, and most people in society really don't have a lot of good awareness about what this is, what incarceration is, why we have incarceration. We talked about that already today. So... Yeah, I think the men were trying to be realistic in the sense of the, the extreme challenges they knew they were facing when they came back into the community. The forces against them are just incredible. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what Dr. Outland was saying. It's just like you have to accept the reality. And it seems like they know the reality um, of what is forthcoming for them when they release when they are released and so it makes it kind of hard for them to you know get out of the cycle is what it sounds like and, and if I add, oh go ahead Bob. no 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 go right ahead please no I just wanted to add on to that I think what you all are speaking about too is a major contributing pack, uh, factor to recidivism mm -hmm. and it's ongoing maintenance and so if we know that someone being incarcerated may have more access to the activities that influence their incarceration rather than something different that takes them in a, a more productive way. Um, it's a very easy mathematical equation to me. And so, you know, I think really asking like what needs to be done to break that cycle, you know, becomes key. So I just wanted to add that piece the way you said it, Bob. Yeah. Um, you know, since we're on the topic of like what needs to be done to break the cycle, um, we've, we, we have what people have said, like we've discussed, this is what they are saying that they need. Um, and I mean, I know that there are recommendations out there um, 
I guess, but do y'all care to share some of those like recommendations and suggestions of what we need to be doing? Um, and I know that this is, I think, before I ask the question or we get into the conversation, I know that there has to be a much, there's a bigger level to this, like legislation has to change. Um, but just from your work, from your experience, what are some things that you, you all feel need to be um, done to support women, men, elderly people, um, people who are incarcerated coming out? Um, one thing I'll say briefly, I, I have to head out in about eight minutes. I have to go pick up my daughter from camp. Um, but uh, what I'll say, you made me think about Angela Davis's work, um, Our Prisons Obsolete. You know, she reminded us then that prior to the ending of the institution of chateau slavery, many people who resided on Turtle Island, whether they were stolen Africans or Europeans, colonizers, it was difficult to not imagine a society without chateau slavery. Um, I think the same challenge is amongst us right now. I think it's challenging for people, especially those who say working class and have bought them a house and trying to support their family. We become so deeply conditioned about the deception of the prison industrial complex, where I think there is a challenge not seeing our world without it. So I think a start for me is all of us beginning to challenge ourselves to really ask the question of why do we need to move towards prison abolition? And I hopefully, as someone listened to this conversation, gather all the details about how toxic these institutions are, hopefully we begin to reach more of that conclusion that these institutions such as a prison is more hurtful and detrimental to us than helpful. And there becomes a real logic now about why do we want to hold on to something like this? Like let's let's um, as Davis was reminded, let's we have to imagine something different, imagining a different way of really rehabilitating people, imagining different ways of repairing certain damage that harmful acts and activities have caused to individuals, others, as well as larger communities. And this is not the same crime and punishment model that we're dealing with now. We're talking about, and I'm thinking about Walter Rodney's grounding with my brothers, a kind of indigenous African or even indigenous uh, on Turtle Island uh, reparation process where there could be a clear analysis about what damage was done and how do we repair the damage that have been, you know, that have taken place. But until we start moving ourselves, society, each other towards abolition, we'll probably find ourselves here in the next 10 years, you know, having this conversation and yeah, just kind of recycling it. So I'm, I'm more clear about why prisons, jails needs to be abolished and you know, excited just about getting in spaces where we can have more conversations about what can replace these institutions. Exactly. And I, I definitely agree. Uh, Dr. Delmeyer, what are your your thoughts, recommendations here? Well, you're asking um, 
what needs to be done. And to add to what Raphael's been saying, I, I think there's there's big picture stuff mm -hmm. that is by far the most important stuff that, that Raphael's talking about, changing the system, abolishing prisons. Um, one of the good things is that we have models. There are cultures who do much better with this. In other words, you know, people make a mistake, they do harm, and rather than putting them in a cage and, and looking down them uh, as uh, someone not to be respected, they're still seen as human beings. And how, how do we work with this person to re truly rehabilitate them? So we can look to some of these other countries and some of these other cultures and learn from them and be humble enough to recognize, yeah, they're doing it better. Um, so the big picture stuff of, of changing our society to be less racist, to recognize the humanity of people who make mistakes. We all make mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that's the most important. If you want to ask, what do we do in the short run? Well, let me say one more thing about the big picture. We need to invite people to join us. Vancivia, uh, Raphael, Bob, we need to invite people to join us. And there are many people out there who are already doing this work, advocating for uh, better criminal justice practices in our, in our society. But there's many people with good hearts who I think if they knew better, they would join. So we need, we need to educate and get out there and raise awareness, have conversations, have dialogue to, to do better. And to, like you say, Van Kivia, that a lot of this is policy level stuff. We, we need to get the politicians, the government people involved and change policies. Mm -hmm. So that when, when judges sit in courts, the options that they have are different mm -hmm. than what they are currently. Um, yeah. And just continue to talk to the women and the men who are experiencing all of this because they're, they're the ones who have the best answers. It's not a doctorate degree that makes you have a good answer. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm being respectful of the education and, and the thought process, absolutely. We need good thinkers, but mostly we need people who are living it and, and their message to guide us and to listen to them and to collaborate together. Yeah, and that's why I appreciate, I really do appreciate the work that y'all are doing because qualitative work really allows them to do that. And platforms like this podcast allow them to also be heard as well. So, you know, I'm looking forward to all of those things. And like you said, we have to invite people. Um, we have to, I mean, we need legislation to change too, um, but the stuff that we can do now are those things of asking ourselves those questions, um, kind of understanding these things, having these critical conversations and inviting people to do this, um, to be a part of it as well. So I thank you all for all of that insight. Um, Dr. Allen, if you need to go, you can uh, drop off of here if you need to. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll just make a final thought. Um, thank you. I just want to say thank you for um, this platform, um, your intention and just commitment, you know, to giving voice uh, to what people need once they're released. And um, 
one thing I'll encourage all of us, as Bob was kind of pointing out, is uh, continue to come together about this work. You know, we don't have to do it in silos and alone, but as Bob mentioned, there's a lot of comrades, academicians, people who care, who's doing the work. So continue to unite with them. And also, you know, we might exist in that academic space, but there are definitely plenty of organizations too who are out there doing, re, whether it's re-entry work, uh, transformative work towards abolition. But I think too, from our seat, you know, in these different towers, we too got to reach out and try to build those bridges between those organizations outside of the academy doing the work and trying to bring some of that learning and knowledge to our students and folks at the academy. So just want to thank both of you all for um, your work and, and Van Kivia, maybe in the future we can do this again, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. Always, always welcome both of you. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'll see you guys soon then. I'll talk to you soon. Um, Dr. Thanks, Raphael. Okay. Thank you, Van Kivia. Bye. Bye. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, that is great. And, you know, before we get off here, Dr. Dabmir, because Dr. Allen's already kind of giving his uh, kind of summary or thing he wants the audience to remember. I want to ask you the same thing of, you know, what do you want our audience to take away from this conversation today? Um, yeah, what do you want them to take away from this? Um, I think the most important thing is to try to be open recognizing the humanity of people who are incarcerated. Look at their humanness. What talents do they have in life? What gifts do they have um, that they can contribute to their families, to their communities, to the culture? Um, don't be afraid of them. Be open to them. Recognize we all make mistakes. One person ends up behind bars for their mistakes, another person may not. Um, so try to be open, try to be respectful. Um, it, the message could not be clearer from older men, from younger men, um, from older women, younger women. They cannot do it alone. There are just too many forces against them to do it alone. They cannot be the parents they want to be. They cannot be the citizens they want to be. If we, people who are in the free world, namely we're in the community and we're not incarcerated, if we need to help them. Uh, first of all, philosophically, just being open to their humanity. But then more practically, you know, if I'm an employer, um, seek out people who've been incarcerated to help you with, with your, your mission. Um, if 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 I'm a landlord, um, make it clear in the community that you're you're open to people who've been incarcerated, and then, you know, have conversations with them, develop your policies to to set up your your uh, relationships the way you want to, the way that you will feel comfortable. There's there's room for for success here for everyone, for yourself and your business, for yourself and your your uh, being a landlord, and for the the people. Who we're trying to help here. There's room for success. So try to be open. That, that, I think that's my main message. Recognize their humanity. 
Definitely agree. Recognize the humanity being open and that there's success for all of us out here. Um, and if we work together, we can all strive to live in the best possible world that we can and the best society that we can as well. So Dr. Delmere, I am so appreciative of you coming on and, you know, sharing your expertise, you and Dr. Outland. Um, it's been such a great conversation to just talk about the needs of these individuals and to give people some more insight on, you know, particular vulnerable groups that we are not paying attention to. So um, I know from More Life, our team, we are just so grateful. And I say thank you. If I could respond, I would very much like to thank you for the work you're doing, for inviting us. Um, like like Dr. Outland said, Van Kiwi, I hope that we can connect with each other more, mm -hmm. keep each other you know, aware of, of uh, progress we're making in this work and work together in ways that, uh, that make sense for you and your journey and for us and our journeys. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. We most definitely can. I'll definitely keep in contact. Love to have you all back on with new subjects, new um, areas that people can learn about. Um, but before we get off of here, everyone, um, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you took some great information away from us. Um, make sure you follow us on Instagram at More Life the Reentry Podcast so you can interact with us and tell us what you learned from this episode. Um, tell us your thoughts. Uh, uh, so we can engage in critical conversations about these uh, concerns as well and things that you are doing or what you feel like should be done to further support these individuals as they go through this process. Um, but we're so grateful for you all. And as always, if you enjoyed the episode, please push the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and more life, the reentry podcast. Thank you. Thank you.